In August of 2017, scores of astronomers heard their cell phones ring. It was the sort of robocall you wait your entire career to receive. Gravitational wave detectors in Louisiana, Washington State, and Pisa, Italy, were sending out an alert. Within minutes, astronomers around the world scrambled to focus their equipment on a speck in the sky 130 million light-years away. In the weeks afterwards, about a third of all the world's astronomers, almost 4,000 astronomers, joined forces to co-author a single publication, writing up the results. Einstein's theories were again shown to be correct. And, though it was virtually a footnote, we now know the answer to a previously unsolved mystery of the universe. Where does gold come from? From PRX, this is Orbital Path, a show about the cosmos and our place in it. I'm Michelle Fowler. Proof of the source of gold in the universe was one of the many discoveries that stemmed from August's first detection of an event that could be described as kind of an apocalypse, the death spiral of two neutron stars. The event was observed in our lifetimes, but this cataclysmic collision actually occurred about 130 million years ago. Dinosaurs were walking on the Earth. <laughs> That's Dr. Vicky Calogera. She's a distinguished university professor and the director of the Center of Interdisciplinary Exploration and Research in Astrophysics at Northwestern University, just outside of Chicago. She was one of the lead authors on that paper that included 4,000 other astronomers. Since that cataclysmic collision of two neutron stars, not only has all of human history passed, millions and millions of years of dinosaur history passed too. It's a lot to get your head around. So I asked Vicky to start by just telling us exactly what is a neutron star. So neutron stars are actually the most compact physical objects we have in the universe. And they are as big as a downtown big city. So they're about seven miles across in diameter, but their mass is as much as the mass of the sun. So if we put a whole sphere of this object, uh, it fits more or less above the downtown of Chicago. But the mass is enormous. It's as massive as our sun. So the density is extreme. I know one of my favorite analogies, maybe you have yours, is that you know the density of these things are so incredible that one teaspoonful would have as much mass as an entire mountain, for example. Exactly, exactly. So it's impossible to imagine holding a little sugar cube of neutron star matter, for example, because it would be a whole Mount Everest in our hand. And how does something this extreme form? So neutron stars are basically death remnants. So when stars more massive than our sun, uh, maybe 10 times uh, as much as the mass of our sun, run out of fuel, they're at the end of their lives, they cannot support themselves anymore against their own gravity. So the inner parts of these massive stars completely collapse upon their own gravity. The outer layers get expelled and the inner parts collapse into these tiny little compact objects that we call neutron stars. And eventually they find equilibrium. And at that point, they're kind of dead in the sense that there is no nuclear burning, no nuclear reactions are happening, no nuclear energy is being produced inside those stars. So they are death remnants, I call them. 
If you were near a neutron star, what would you see? I mean, what, what color are they? Are they dim? Are they bright? Well, if you're really close to them, they're still quite bright. Um, but from from the distances normally we see neutron stars, they're, they're actually quite dim. So in our telescopes, it's very hard to see neutron stars directly. They're not as bright as uh, uh, live stars. One of the things that I always try to visualize myself is that the, the, the gravity around a neutron star is really intense. It's very intense, yes. And you would probably even see like strange distortions. If you look near a neutron star, light would be bending around them a bit. Was, is that true? Absolutely. So what happens is that when objects are compact, gravity is very intense. And when gravity is intense, then light gets affected. So light that comes from the back of the neutron star can get bent and actually come into our direction. And if you're very close to the neutron star, then our bodies can feel the strong gravity of the neutron star and even get stretched a little bit. So it's not a pleasant experience to be really <laughs> close to a neutron star. I wouldn't <laughs> recommend it. <laughs> Why would there be two neutron stars orbiting each other? So neutron stars are death remnants of massive stars. And the majority of stars out there actually don't live in isolation. Uh, our sun is a single star with planets around it, the Earth being one of them. But the majority of stars out there in our galaxy and the universe live in pairs. Uh, they, they have companions. So a lot of the neutron stars, which are the remnants of stars, um, are formed in binaries. So they have companions next to them. Now, it is rare for two neutron stars to be in an orbit. Uh, sometimes you have different types of compact objects, like a neutron star in a black hole or a neutron star in a white dwarf. But because most of the stars are in binaries, you can get two neutron stars in one orbit. Now, as they live their lives in a binary system, they go one around the other, just like the Earth is going around the sun, and they slowly, they disturb the space-time like an egg beater, and they emit weak gravitational waves. The disturbances are weak, they emit the waves, and they slowly lose energy from their orbit. Losing their energy means that they're coming closer and closer together. Their orbit shrinks. So they are in a death spiral dance, as I call it. These two neutron stars are going to eventually spiral in and faster and faster, eventually, they're going to destroy themselves. Well, let's go to August 17th. Yes. <laughs> what happened that day? So for the first time ever, we received signals from a source in different types of waves. Everything we know about astronomy up until very recently, we've known through astronomical observations of electromagnetic waves. So light that our eyes can detect, but also other electromagnetic waves like X-rays, microwaves and radio waves. But there's a completely different type of wave that Einstein predicted over a century ago, and that's called gravitational waves. And about two years ago, we had the amazing first detection of pure gravitational waves. Now, the difference with August 17th, 2017th, is that for the first time, we discovered a cosmic source that simultaneously emitted both gravitational waves 
and electromagnetic waves. And that kind of multi-messenger emission, as we call it, we had never seen before. So that was quite a day for us. It was about 5.40 in the morning when many of us were awoken um, with alerts on our cell phones. That's physicist Mike Landry. He's head of LIGO Hanford, one of two arrays in the United States that have been seeking since the 1990s to detect gravitational waves from outer space. Gravitational waves were theorized by Einstein about a century ago. And LIGO is the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, designed to actually detect waves, ripples basically, in the fabric of space and time itself. Now, this is extremely hard to do because lucky for us, these ripples are very, very tiny. In the case of LIGO, there are two facilities, one in Washington State and one in Louisiana, that have lasers that are two and a half miles long. Each facility has two of these lasers at a right angle, forming a corner. And the idea is that if a gravitational wave comes by, it will compress one of the paths of lasers more than the other. And you can actually tell that there was a bending, a change in space itself. But the first detection of these waves came only in 2015, after upgrades to LIGO, resulting in last year's Nobel Prize in Physics. Detection of gravitational waves was also central to the detection of this neutron star collision. Our detector at LIGO Hanford in uh, Washington State and our sister observatory in Louisiana recorded a signal at each detector that's pretty similar. Then the so-called rapid response team jumps on the phone and tries to vet it, see if it's real or not. And if, it's, if it passes some checks, then we send that alert out to the astronomical community. So on August 17th, people got that call. And the fascinating thing about this one is right away, you could tell this was a new sort of object. We had not seen two binary neutron stars collide together before. And when that happens, we knew that there would be this long chirp, the whoop, the chirp of the collision of those two neutron stars in the data. You had a hundred seconds worth of a chirp in the data. And so right away, it was clear that you had something very interesting going on. And then the second big deal on that call was there was a coincident gamma ray burst. The uh, Fermi gamma ray burst monitor, they had a gamma ray burst. So we had a neutron star-like signal in our detectors. And within two seconds, you had a gamma ray burst. And so quite differently than most of these calls where you kind of don't know what's going on. This one, you thought right away, wow, this is something crazy interesting. Now let's talk a bit about that chirp, because as you said, this was a very different event. Well, you know, what LIGO had detected before were two merging black holes. And these black holes were much more massive. The first ones, I believe, were on the order of about 30 times the mass of the sun. That's right. Uh, very first event, September 14th, 2015, was two massive black holes, one 29 times the mass of the sun, one 36 times the mass of the sun. And these were spiraling together so quickly that you only were able to detect a, a couple seconds, right, of, of signal from these guys. That's right. They're, they're more massive, and so they smash together at lower frequencies. And so they're at the bottom end, the low end of our, our, our window of detectability. The neutron stars, which are lighter, chirp up to higher frequencies. So instead of just a whoop, you get a whoop that goes into higher frequencies. And that means they're in your detector for a much longer time. And what is this chirp, this rip, you know, what, what is that? Well, we're playing what the detector hears in a sense. So our ears convert sound energy, the, the waving of molecules in the air, compression waves. Your eardrum vibrates and you get an electrical signal in your brain. And that's what you interpret as sound. Here, we have L-shaped detectors that detect the relative lengths of the arms. 
And if a gravitational wave goes by, squeezing and expanding the space that those detectors live in, those arm lengths wave around, and we transduce that gravitational wave signal into an electrical signal, which gets recorded on a computer. Then we can just play it. And so what you're really hearing in the whoop, the chirp itself, you're hearing the vibrations of space-time that's created by these two dead stars as they spiral together in the last seconds of their life in the case of this binary neutron star system. Now this is something, of course, that most people don't realize is that there are waves of space-time going through us all the time. So when this wave, so this this happened, you know, in, in this case, uh, um, the neutron stars were something about, what was it, 130 million light years away. By the time these ripples got to us, just how big were these ripples in space-time? How would you describe them? Well, they're uh, really damn small is maybe the simplest way to put it. They're, <laughs> they're, they're deforming one arm of our four-kilometer-long, two-and-a-half-mile-long L-shaped detector by a few thousandths the size of a proton. And it's kind of amazing that you can even make that measurement, um, that it's even detectable with uh, modern technologies, macroscopic mirrors and lasers and seismic isolation systems, but it is. And so when we get a trigger, it takes about three minutes or so, and within three minutes of the gravitational wave, which has been moving at the speed of light for hundreds of millions of years, these clusters of supercomputers spit out the idea that you've got a trigger in both detectors that matches, and that's what initiates the call. That call set off a thrilling scramble for Mike Landry and his LIGO colleagues in Hanford, Washington, and for astronomers around the world, like Vicky Calogera. I think everybody absolutely dropped uh, uh, what we were doing. In fact, uh, you know, August 17th, the, the other thing exciting we were all anticipating was not this discovery, of course. It was a few days before the total solar eclipse that was yes. going to be visible and was visible uh, from the U.S. So many of us were traveling. We were on our way to a location where we could catch the total eclipse. So we dropped everything that morning, though, uh, trying to coordinate and figure out how to best communicate with many other groups and alert the right uh, observatories to make sure that we catch the source that first emitted gravitational waves and try and catch it in as many bands of electromagnetic waves as we could as soon as possible. Emission in different bands of electromagnetic spectrum and also emission in gravitational waves comes from different physical processes. So if we can catch emission in these different areas, then we're learning about different things that the source is doing. So you had these two super compact objects, you know, somewhere about the mass of the sun, and they're spiraling together until they finally collide. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the, and this produced, I mean, talk about how this produces gravity waves. You know, what does this do oh, to the fabric yes. of space-time? Yes, absolutely. The production of gravitational waves goes back to a fundamental breakthrough understanding that Einstein had in connection to what gravity is. So the core idea behind Einstein's theory was that gravity is not some kind of magical force between masses, but instead gravity is the influence of mass on the geometry of space-time, but let's think only about space. So if you think of space as something undisturbed and flat, like the surface of a lake that's undisturbed, and then 
you put mass, let's say a spherical ball, on top of the lake, that mass curves space. Now, if you put another mass and you try to make it be still, it cannot be still because the space is curved around it. So it will move following the curvature of the space. And if that second mass is moving, but it also creates its own little dimple at the surface of the lake, now imagine those two little dimples going one around the other as they're following the curvature of the space. You're creating disturbances that are now moving in space and that motion of the dimples is creating waves, disturbances in space that generate ripples in space-time and that's gravitational waves. In this uh, discovery in August, we caught them in the last 100 seconds of their death spiral, where they're going one around the other now very fast, producing strong gravitational waves. You know, people think about heavy elements being produced in supernovae, but, but, but gold and platinum in particular, you really need these, these colliding neutron stars for. But what, what's the story about this gold? Regular stars in their centers, they synthesize heavy elements. We start with hydrogen, which is a rather light chemical uh, element in our periodic table that we all have seen in our classrooms. The lightest element is hydrogen. And in the centers of stars, hydrogen gets converted into helium and helium into heavier elements, etc. So the nuclear burning can lead you to heavier elements but that happens stably all the way up to iron. It turns out that, of course, in nature, on the Earth, we know that much heavier elements exist. Gold is one of them, platinum is another. But we know from physics that stars cannot form them stably through nuclear burning. So it's been a long-standing mystery how these much heavier elements actually form. One of our suspicions, not random suspicion, well-justified suspicion, was that collisions of neutron stars provide these highly energetic conditions where lots of neutrons can come together and form these heavy elements. Heavy because there's lots of neutrons coming together in the nucleus, much, many more neutrons than iron has. And that's exactly what happens when two neutron stars collide, you create the right conditions for the heavy elements to form. When that formation of gold happens, there is a particular type of emission that comes out in the optical and the infrared part of the electromagnetic spectrum that we received through our telescopes. But the uniqueness of this event is that the gravitational waves told us that there was a collision of two neutron stars. And it was that combination that associated the gold optical emission signature with the collision of the two neutron stars and kind of solved the mystery. It's gold in the form of gas. When that gas eventually settles and forms stars and the stars have disks around them, gaseous disks, and those disks settle and cool down and form planets like the Earth around the sun, then those planets form rocks and mountains, and in those mountains, eventually those elements 
become the nuggets of gold, and that's the gold we find on Earth. So what's left after two neutron stars collide, you know, ah. what, 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 you know after the explosion? Well, you're asking uh, one of the several questions that are still open. This one discovery has answered some of the long-standing questions we've had for some of them long-standing for decades. But this one discovery also has opened up new questions. So we know two neutron stars collided. We don't know what came after the collision. Either the two neutron stars came together, combined into a single object, maybe a heavier neutron star that is more massive and stable, or you got a black hole because it couldn't hold itself against its own gravity and nothing could survive. Which of the two happened? We actually don't know right now. We are using both the information in the gravitational wave signal and the electromagnetic signal that came for days and weeks and it's still coming. Uh, we're still detecting radio waves and X-rays from the source months after the event. And we're trying to use that information to figure out whether a black hole or a neutron star is still there. But we don't have the answer yet. I remember when people were still trying to figure out what these gamma ray bursts were because yes. they had unbelievable amounts of energy. And we were sort of looking at each other going, what could possibly create that much energy? And then I remember that, you know, them saying, well, one idea is that two neutron stars you know, could circle around each other and collide. Yeah. And it, it just seemed, it seemed almost sort of preposterous. It turns out that that guess was that right. We now right. have proof of that. A lot of what was observed in that first day and the weeks that followed had been predicted and hypothesized and calculated well before. So I think that the, this one discovery in many ways, of course, is a triumph of observational astronomy because without the data, you can never be sure that you understand what's going on in nature. But in many ways, it's also a triumph of the ability to do computer simulations and theoretical astrophysics because a lot of what we expected was proven right on that day. And yet a whole set of new questions were opened up. That's astronomer Vicky Caloguera. She's director of the Center of Interdisciplinary Exploration and Research in Astrophysics and a distinguished professor at Northwestern University. Vicky calls this a triumph, and I really have to agree. When you think about not only the theoretical triumph of trying to predict what a gamma ray burst really is, how could you possibly get that much energy? The guess was neutron stars, and that turned out to be correct. And it's also a triumph of technology. These gravitational waves are startlingly tiny, thousands of times smaller than the diameter of a single proton. And yet we built something that can actually detect that, can actually detect little wobbles and ripples in the fabric of space and time itself. That really is a triumph. Thanks for listening in on this episode of Orbital Path from PRX. We'd love you to check out some more episodes at orbital.prx.org. Support for Orbital Path is provided by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance. More at sloan.org.
This episode of Orbital Path was produced by David Shulman. Our editor is Andrea Mustaine. Special thanks to John Barth and Genevieve Sponsler, practicing their neutron star chirps back at BRX. Signing off for now, I'm Michelle Thaller. A little bit of spiraling dense stardust.